You're listening to the Degrees of Freedom podcast. Conversations about higher education in the 21st century between students and teachers. Produced at the University of Groningen. Hello and welcome back to the Degrees of Freedom podcast. I am one of your hosts, Colin Furhan, and I'm of course sitting here next to my co-host, Tassa Sarampoulos. And today, this is podcast seven. We are here to talk about, for me, what is a very personally interesting uh, topic and theme, which is handling failure. And I'm very personally interested to have this discussion to try and understand what failure might mean in my own life, how I go about it as a student that has experienced failure already, but that was certainly bound to experience failure as I enter into the professional atmosphere, uh, coming to the end of my studies. And today we have two guests with us. I'm sitting with uh, Brian Ossifin, who is an associate professor in the clinical psychology department uh, at our faculty, where he, or your interest is, I guess, would be mostly in addiction, meaning of life, meditation, uh, to list a few of many. Yeah, uh, the main things now are <clears throat> the mindfulness meditation, life meaning and the experience of the emotion of awe. Okay. Yeah. I'm also sitting here with Marcello Seri. Marcello is a member of the Young Academy Groningen, which is a group of up and coming researchers here at our university. And they have a cohort project this year, which is called Failing Forward. So that's certainly something why we wanted to have you on the podcast. You're also a big fan of the podcast. <laughs> yes. <indeed. laughs> As you told us, which we're always happy to hear. And Perhaps, uh, Tassos, I think that's an appropriate place to start is maybe to start with this um, project that you and your cohort are going to be leading this year called Failing Forward. Maybe you could talk a bit about that, Marcello. Uh, yes, sure. So thank you very much, first of all, for having us here. And um, um, we started at the Young Academy in September last year. So we have done uh, almost our first year as members of the Young Academy and uh, each cohort as a project. Uh, that is meant to somehow connect to researcher to society. There, are, there might be um, various different uh, aspects of academic life that can be discussed there. You might know the uh, Humans of the Rook podcast, for example, that uh, that was done by the previous court, and uh, which I think also has a episode about failure. And um, so, uh, for, with our court, we weren't really sure what to do last year until we we started talking about failures and uh, we realized that we really live in a world and in an environment that thrive on success. We always uh, celebrate all successes of everybody. Uh, we always showcase our uh, uh, our wins, uh, our best papers, our grants and so on. And somehow we hide our failures, but we are human and failure is part of life, is part of growth, is part of scientific research, is the core of science. And so we thought that uh, it would be good um, in in this environment that drives on success to actually level things out and start talking about failure, which is really a key part uh, of ourselves and what we do. And so the project is about uh, a few deliverables, uh, which are not going to spoil yet, <laughs> uh, which would showcase failure as what it is. Failure as, uh, as an opportunity to grow, failure as part of uh, some limits of society that you can, uh, that you can criticize and work to improve. Uh, failure as part as uh, maybe uh, a framing or a goal that you set uh, maybe in the wrong way for yourself. And uh, and we really aim both at our other researcher. There's a big problem of people. We always see the successes, as I said, of the others. And we always think we are the wrong one because our paper was rejected, because we didn't get a grant, because of many reasons. And uh, And this is not true. Everybody has their own failure. It's just you're not showing them. And, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm going off a tangent, so I should probably stop, but that's the idea of the project. The idea is uh, showcase failure at various levels for uh, kids and for people and for researchers, and then use it to grow and understand how to use it to grow. Yeah, and, and maybe one thing I should have also mentioned uh, about you, Marcello, is that you are actually from a different faculty of us, that you come from a different professional background, one that we, we share in some ways. So you're a mathematician, you come from the Faculty of Science and Engineering, and 
I previously actually studied also a engineering degree oh, yeah? um, before I switched to psychology. And so I have a bit of a background in maths or, and I, I can certainly remember the many times that I failed in these classes. Uh, really, I think mathematics and engineering is uh, iterative failing in many ways. Maybe you can talk about your own personal experiences as uh, your, with your own background uh, in mathematics. Okay, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, and yes, indeed. So the nice thing, what I like about uh, doing mathematics is that very often you don't know where you're going. So you want to develop a language and you want to understand how some things or some theories are working. You have an idea, a guess, or, uh, uh, or an informed guess of what you would like to do, but then you don't know how to get there. And then you start poking at it. And usually what you do, you're just going in the wrong direction. So you, you keep going, you're excited. This is the right road. You're almost there. And then you realize that you start from the, like an absurd hypothesis or something that you were assuming it must be true was completely false and you have to start again. So indeed, your description as iterated failure actually sounds about right. <laughs> it's mostly the time that it doesn't work until it works. Mm. What's interesting, of course, is that um, in in a lot of aspects of society and certainly in academia, all of these um, um, iterative steps uh, towards success or these iterative steps of failure are are absent from um, a personal or a professional narrative. So everybody's CV, everybody's transcript of grades in university and in school largely consists of their successes and all of the absences are missing. And this is one of the reasons why we also wanted to, to have an episode on this topic of failure to uh, perhaps uh, remind everybody that um, uh, there is no success without a, a, a big background of failures. And this is also recently acknowledged more generally in academia or not perhaps in academia, but amongst academics. Recently, um, we've had examples of these things that we call uh, CVs of failure, uh, which are these, these the, the, the missing parts of the iceberg of success, if you like, that big portion uh, of your endeavors that represent uh, so-called failures that are largely missing from people's CVs and narratives. And I thought uh, it would be useful to also talk about it in those terms. Yeah, so you actually spoiled one third of our project. <laughs> uh, so indeed, so the fact that even the best of us uh, have plenty of failures is completely hidden from sight. And there is this, uh, you know it probably, there is this famous psychology professor, I think in Princeton that mm -hmm. did the CV of failures a few years ago. and. Uh, Princeton is like top-notch university. You wouldn't expect that people there actually have failures, but uh, they are as human uh, as they can be, and also they are, have the same uh, their share of failures. I would suspect even more failures. I think this is perhaps something that we will get to at some point. That um, failure often represents that you are at the right level of challenges or uh -huh. a right level of challenges. Can I just bring something in here? Um, the project sounds really very interesting. <clears throat> and what some of the discussion has been brought to my mind is the extent to which uh, failure is not looked upon as part of the ideal. So it's swept under the rug, not just within the academics, but within cultural culture more broadly. And so, you know, they say people who spend a lot of time on social media, like particularly like Facebook, they see everybody's good things, all the splendors of their lives, and they don't see all the, the, the bad things, right? And all the, the failures and, and, and whatnot. And, and it brings to mind, and this may be going too far into the abstract, but the existential perspectives, there's a well-known book by uh, Ernest Becker called The Denial of Death. He says that humans are like other animals and we have a desire for self-preservation um, and thus a fear of our own mortality. But unlike other animals, we're aware of our mortality. And so we try to get rid of our mortality, try to get rid of any sort of reminders of our mortality or limitations more generally. So I'm, I'm curious if there's some sort of cultural element that's going on as well in which we don't want to see limitations. We don't want to have that exposed to us. We don't want to see homeless people now there's no longer funerals, but celebrations of life. <laughs> All these sorts of things in which limitations and the messiness is, I don't know how to best put it, but uh, we don't want to look at it because that then allows us to feel like we're these purely symbolic beings. We 
we're not animal-like, we don't have these limitations. I don't know, I'm curious if you all see that sort of thing as well. Do you think this represents um, uh, a lack of discussion and perhaps even ability to handle discomfort, to handle the tension of this, what you... Um, what you called, uh, I think this, this, um, not dirtiness, but, um, messiness, messiness. Yeah. that's the, yeah. that's the word. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a big part of it. Uh, and <clears throat> yeah, perhaps part of that is the, where our society is going as far as the overarching control factors. So it used to be religion in many cultures, still in many cultures, it's there. And there, it's, it, my sense is it, it takes a broader scope of what a human life is about. Whereas now in the West in particular, there's a number of analysts, like Eric Fromm, for example, has this great book, The To Have and To Be. So it's like, you know, traditionally, in many cultures, being was important, like how you're becoming, what you're becoming like, of like the big values of are you becoming loving and so on and so forth. But with the West, with our technological advancements, and our cultural changes that we're now a logical scientific culture. And so um, we have a lot of power over, over the world. And so this is the way that we see things. And so we, we, that's what we value now. We value the ease of what technology can give us and, um, and success in achieving things, treating things as things uh, to be manipulated, which is what science can do and what you do with logic, rather than another uh, old uh, theorist, uh, Martin Buber, talked about I-thou relationships yeah? versus an I-it relationship. And a thou relationship with nature, ourselves, or other people, you have to take in the whole messiness, I think. Whereas the it, you could just have the, the cleanness. So do, do you think it's also about selfishness and ego then? Uh... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's a good question. Yeah. I think, I think very much so. Yeah. I think that it seems to me that our, our culture is one in which we don't have a grammar for the transcendent anymore. And so we don't have that grammar, you know, it used to be an organized religion that because we don't have that, that it's so easy to focus in on ourself. A and one of the things I was, I was thinking a bit about, you know, failure and such why is it painful? I think part of it is that we don't have the perspective that uh, proper humility um, can allow, that we're just part of this grand narrative, a small part of it, an important part, but a small part of it. I mean, the Stoics, I think, talked about when you're thinking about human-oriented issues, you should be thinking of it from a, a higher order, from, like, from, the, from the, co the vision of the cosmos. Then that gives you perspective or... Seems like maybe as you get older too, that why things don't hurt as much is maybe because we have perspective. We just have a, a a broader idea of what a human life is about, so less ego less ego centered. I'd be curious. We we talked a bit about there. You you talked Brian about our cultural approach to failure and how that informs our perspective of failure. What current world? cultural alternatives are there would you that can maybe an open question to everyone sitting at the table right now is yeah is there some other cultural alternatives to their approach failure that might be a bit more beneficial than that we typically employ in the west well i i i, I don't know how to answer this this question in that sense but uh, i i know that for me one of the ways to um to think about failures, to reframe it from the point of view of what we consider to be success. And um, in terms of um, evaluating uh, one's success or one's path in life, whatever micro or macro aspect of life we're thinking about, whether it's professional, whether it's uh, personal, whether it is um, interpersonal, is to, to consider goals, to consider actively uh, reflecting on creating goals, on evaluating goals, on uh, assessing one's actions in relation to those goals, and understand this um, one's narrative through life, through professional success, and all the other kind of successes uh, that I just mentioned, as relating to this, um, to to a as being a relationship with these goals and and in and intentions. 
And I think one of the points that um, uh, I found interesting in what, in what Brian was saying and also what Marcello brought up is that we we are in a very, uh, currently, especially in the West, but I think also globally, given that um, um, we are talking about a sort of global culture in many ways uh, because of the developments in technology, this is a very egocentric uh, culture that we're dealing with. You talked about social media, uh, Brian, and certainly um, it's the it's all about the I. It's not about the relationship with uh, the world. It's not really about the relationships with a lot of things. I remember uh, Time has a person of the year every year, and uh, in recent years, um, that person of um, of the year was I. It was a mirror. The cover was a mirror uh, representing this this culture of focusing very much on the self and not the relationship to to the world. And I think one alternative, whether it's explicit culturally anywhere or um, uh, somewhere, is um, to to detach yourself from this uh, perspective and to not see failure or success as representing um, something that particularly reflects on who you are as an individual. I, I in my preparation for this podcast, um, b- being again in a, in a world of um, social media and uh, all kinds of media, I of course searched for inspirational quotes or um, um, uh, famous sayings that relate to this. And really the only one that really resonated with me was um, the line from uh, Kipling's uh, poem, If. Uh, which says, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. Um, and for me, this is the at my best, and that's not very frequent. My best relationship with success is the same as the relationship that I have with failure, which is to say that ah, they don't really mean very much. They don't really mean very much about who I am as an individual. Uh, they represent perhaps um, some consequences of actions which were themselves possibly coincidental or circumstantial um, or maybe not uh, but in any case they don't really reflect on who I am as an individual um, but rather something uh, relating to a process yeah I, I would like to just add one one addendum because we we roughed around the the idea of defining what failure might mean actually and you, you brought up something that uh, as far as goals, you know, a failure to meet goals, for example, is. However, I, I would say one small thing I think is that failure can be, is really as simple at its finest as, in my eyes, just a failing to meet expectations. I expect to be on time for this podcast. I was five minutes late, let's say. This is a failure, or I was expecting to get a nice photo with my friends. The lighting was not that great. And it doesn't have to be, I think, one thing that we really need to be careful about is that failure need not be just about something that is explicitly said. I wanted to get, you know, a 4.0 GPA, but failure can be really on its rawest level, a, as simple as, yeah, failing to uh, be kind to your friend because you expect that of yourself or failing to eat healthy tonight. Uh, because and, and these things are all mini failures that we wouldn't explicate, but I think can be really considered failures. I think uh, so. We had a lot of brainstorming about uh, what is failure, also as part of the project, and uh, a lot of it relates with what you were saying. But there is also another point that uh, I think that is um, the subject, because it could be that you don't perceive the failure like what you say. Success and failure are not very much. Uh, from your perspective, but it might be that the perception that the society has or the people around you have, that your students, your peers, your colleagues, uh, your bosses is different. And then they might see the failure or they might see the success and then give it meaning, even though it's not harming you. And I think the fact that you pointed it out is what makes the difference because now they can see this disconnect between their perception and your perception on that specific event, event or set of events. And I think this is another subtle point that my, we might miss sometime. I see you nodding. No, yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. When you're dealing with failure, it's just not, you're not in a vacuum. And so you don't have to just deal with your own stuff and your reactions to it. But maybe if one takes the, the perspective 
that uh, Tassos was mentioning, and I think it comes in a lot of contemplative traditions. The, sto- the, the ancient Greek philosophers talked about was really critical to know what's under your control and what's not. And for the things that are under your control, I mean, truly under your control, then that's where your attention should be. But the things that are not, just let them be, have indifference towards them. And so in some ways, we don't have control over our success or failure, and we certainly don't have control over how people perceive us. But it's so natural, too. I mean, we're, we're social animals. So somehow that also feels, it can, if it goes too far, it can feel, it, as far as the indifference, it feels it can be inhuman in a way. So I, I, I've, I'm not sure how to find this middle ground because on, on one hand, I see very much. So we take things way too seriously. And I think it's about, a lot of it's like the egocentrism. It's like, uh, but on the other hand, so we should like decenter from that and say, this is not who I am in some deep way. And it's not under my control and just let it be. But on the other hand, Tassos, when you're saying, when you're talking about that, I also wonder, are there not some things that you should feel badly about that I would... At least from my perspective, I want to be able to care about something enough that if I don't get it, if something goes awry with it, that I would be devastated. Um, Like, I mean, this is an extreme example, but a a child, like if you have a child that something bad happens to or they die, something really just horrible, I would want to be sad about that. So I guess I wonder, like, you know, we're talking about failure. It seems like we're talking about expectations or goals or values. And I think another dimension along all those are whether it's intrinsically important to us, it's central to who we are, or whether it goes more towards the extrinsic and it's not central to who we are. Mm. That was also something that Tassos and I were discussing in our preparation, trying to identify different types of failure. And we identified at least two where one is more of this failure as a personal judgment. I am lazy. I am not smart and there's more intrinsic looking at your core or what your aspirations are and measuring yourself up, your perceived self up against that and deciding that judging yourself that you are a failure in what you, terms of what you expected. Now there's also failure as a obstacle to future goals. So that might be in as simple as I need to pass this course in order to get my degree. And you might not care about the course at all. That's uh, the, the idea that came to mind was a course that many psychology students must take, statistics. And I don't think that many people that fail statistics really take it so personally that they've failed statistics. They, they don't care about statistics truly, but they do care about trying to graduate and perhaps we can talk about different types of failure and how this might inform yeah our theme of how do we handle this is there different ways that we should go about this should we and, and it does link back to what you were saying Tassos, about this attribution style you know it might be a bit more easier to deflect outwards for example a, a failure of a statistics course or a statistics exam as something okay well it's contextual I, I i'm still great so i'm still smart Whereas if you have this personal judgment, uh, this will be difficult, at least in my imagination, to not internally attribute. Tassos? Yeah, so I wanted to start by saying that um, it's uh, it's a given truth that everybody in our department cares deeply about statistics, and I think we should uh, <laughs> write, this, uh, write this wrong. Um, I, I fully um, uh, agree with, with uh, the idea that... Uh, there are different ways of dealing with different types of failure. You, we mentioned a number of examples of what failure might be, um, and each one will have a, a different process through which it can be handled. Some of them are deeply emotional. Some of them, the, the process of managing this disappointment, this failure, this inability to, to meet a goal or an expectation, um, um, mostly needs the embracing of emotions, the acceptance of emotions, the processing of these emotions. And um, um, I'm curious to hear what you all think about how this is this is possible besides um, a lot of space for dealing with these emotions, the acknowledgement that negative emotions are as 
present as positive emotions in uh, in life. Um, uh, having a good support network from people who can help you contextualize these emotions and these these aspects of success and failure. And other examples, as you said, Colm, are are simply practical. I forgot to submit an assignment or the assignment didn't uh, meet certain criteria for whatever reason. And then the, uh, the way of dealing with that is more practical in identifying perhaps a process that led to this consequence, uh, which may be very simply practical, that you need to have a better relationship with your agenda and your calendar, uh, or uh, reducing the amount of stuff that you have in your life, uh, the, the amount of activities that you have in your life, or whatever it may be. Um, and I feel that there's a, there's a general structure of a process of um, handling all of these types of failures, but each one will have different aspects more accentuated or more important in this. But uh, maybe can I steer a bit the discussion because it also depends on like what you're talking about. There are failures that are minor and you you don't well, care much, and there are things that change your life and that affect your life a lot. And they um, and of course for each of them you have to have a different uh, approach because they are more or less uh, uh, rooted inside you. But um, I think the whole point of discussing failure is not to try and take away the failure or make it disappear or not feel those, uh, this pain or this disappointment. I think it's fine to feel that. It just shows that you care. It's, it's obvious that you feel bad if your kid gets hurt or whatever happens. And uh, it's good. It means that you care. So I don't think we should take away failure. I think we should just be aware that it exists and be sure, be aware that it's not just us. I think the fact that we are open about it and we discuss it and we show that we are all human and this is part of being human and this is part of growing, this is part of our lives, it gives a different way of uh, dealing with it. I can give you two examples if you want, very anecdotal. I don't know if they make even any sense, so you will tell me. But um, one of them is the, I'm talking, thinking about PhD students, is the imposter syndrome. We had uh, our graduate school uh, made this, uh, little seminar about imposter syndrome for PhD students. Imposter syndrome, for who doesn't know, is um, where you are in these environments where everybody is uh, successful and good, uh, at some point uh, you believe that everybody's better than you, you are an imposter, and at some point people will find out that you are an imposter and, uh, uh, and basically they will kick you out, so you will be discovered. And uh, uh, it's surprisingly common. I, mean, it's, I, I felt it myself. I feel it myself. I know many people. And uh, the fun thing about this is you wouldn't talk too much about it 10, 15 years ago. And then there was this thing for graduate students. It was for graduate students, for our PhD students. And you enter this big room and half of them is stuff. So it's really people felt it. And I think it makes a bit different, big difference when you become aware that it's not just you and that it's basically almost all the community that thinks like you, they just never shared uh, this information to each other and never realized that this uh, perception of everybody's better than me is actually so common and is uh, just each of us is expert of their own field. And when you hear other people talking about theirs, it seems like, oh God, they know so much stuff, they no clue about. And uh, the, and just the fact that people started talking about it, for example, in my case, allowed me to mute a bit the voice that made me say, oh, but those people are all better than me. First, at some point, they will discover that I'm a fraud. And um, the other example is from class. I was talking to students. I think we were solving an exercise and at some point said, uh, somebody said something like, yes, but of course, all these things are all easy for you. You know how to solve all exercises. And then uh, you don't make mistakes. And they said, what? Where is this coming from? So somehow, I, I, I wasn't expecting this. Uh, students believed that I don't make mistakes, that I just know how to solve their exercises, that they just do it on the spot. And, uh, and I would never, ever imagine that this was actually what they thought about me. And I basically had to spend the lecture thinking, look, it's... It's mistake all over the place. I won't learn how to solve this exercise if I don't make a mistake after a mistake after a mistake and learn from my mistakes. And the, I think that showing them, making um, Tracy Bolzer in our faculty does this, uh, humanizing your classroom, making it human and showing them that you are not some Superman. I mean, people think that I'm genius because I do mathematics. I, I think you are genius because you do psychology. 
it's the same for everybody. I mean, you have put effort in, you have made your mistake, you have learned, and you have grown in that, and then you became the expert. It's not that I'm a genius, just I put effort into maths because I like that. And for other people, it will be different, but it's the point of putting it the effort and not being a super genius, but just working and failing and learning from it that makes you that. I think that's great. <clears throat> uh, yeah, I, that's really very nice. It just brings up a lot of responses when you're talking about, about, about that. And I wonder, though, also if there are mm, motivational structures that makes it difficult for the professor to show the mistakes. Right? I, I, I think it's really nice instruction and really nice classroom interaction when you can say, I don't know, let's talk through it, or I was wrong. But I think there's also some sort of pressures, internal, external, to be the expert, to be the one on top, to, to be the one who has all the grants, to be successful. And so I wonder how much of this is kind of within the culture of academics, too, that what's valued is not to be a real human being. Is it, um, I, I guess, maybe another way to think about it is... Uh, whether vulnerability is a trait or a value that is um, in any way accepted in, in a field like academia. Because in order to, in some ways, one of the things that I've always felt a little bit uncomfortable about these conversations about failure and the CV of failure is that by and large, they represent enormous privilege. These are successful individuals who have the privilege and this a sense of security, perhaps, to to air their dead, dirty laundry. Um, and with this kind of privilege, you also have responsibilities. But it's it's it it doesn't seem to be that um, vulnerability is a trait that is rewarded. Perhaps we pay lip service to it that it is important. But in academia, being vulnerable is um, is a difficult um, state to be in. It's a difficult trait to... Yeah, in general, right? In general, of but, course. But, no, no, in general within academia, but I also imagine that there are certain parts where it's more okay to be vulnerable because that's social, that's accepted. What to do? I mean, there sh is, should one have a professional um, sphere in which some things are not, uh, vulnerabilities are not brought in? Like if you're talking about the vulnerability of your getting your grant, you know, I... I, I didn't succeed because I'm not smart enough or I had an emotional breakdown. I mean, is that the second one? Is that too much to share? I don't know. No, these are really, really good questions. And I don't, I don't know that we have enough of these questions. And I think this is partly the problem with the, the fact that we don't make enough space for these conversations to develop and for us to establish certain norms that, that of course, mutate through time and uh, in different situations and different levels. And um, I think you both mentioned examples in which, um, uh, let's say, um, figures of authority, I'm very uncomfortable with this, with this term, but uh, in a particular setting, figures of authority exhibit vulnerability where they very clearly indicate that um, they fail on, on, on a number of occasions, regularly perhaps, daily perhaps. Um, as a good example to also, uh, as being good examples of allowing people to also think about their own uh, ability to relate to their vulnerability. Okay, so a question. I, I'm curious, because like, we're talking about some of our own experiences of, of vulnerabilities and failures. Like it, as a student, in your discussions with other students, are there some themes that come out as being particularly important? In terms of failure, I I think that some themes that are really seen in students is certainly this failure of, of course, in the academic sense, um, is, is one. What I, I, I think people, it's, it's funny because they will simultaneously say, you know, oh, my grades don't define me. I, I don't care about my grades. Well, also being very wrapped up in trying to get an eight or a nine or something like this. And, I think that's a symptom of the fact that studying takes up such a big part of your life. So then it becomes a, it's, it's what you associate as your identity. And so to fail in this sense is kind of a hit on your identity, you know, linking it back to what we were talking about as, as far as ego. I think that is something very key. But then there's also the, uh, I think in student circles, there's also the social comparison. So 
there's a social comparison of someone if if you're a person that didn't come you know maybe the academic sector uh your your educated your education sector wasn't as important to you but let's say a friend of yours started a art project uh that has been quite successful or a collective or has pursued some sort of passion while you had difficulties with pursuing your own or weren't sure about how to go about that or it didn't really get off the ground i think then there's also a sense of yeah i'm a missed opportunity or damn why didn't that happen or it could be even as simple as especially in university circles having the feeling of did i make especially i see this with my cohort as we approach the end of our study you know did i make close friends will i stay in contact with my friends did I make connections you know I think these are running themes that I would identify Mm -hmm. and I think all of them perhaps the academic the least but all of them can be very much linked to this idea of self and I I believe it's very that's that's so key for young people that are searching for identity, coming out of high school, coming to university when things are changing so much. And they are also in such a highly comparison-focused world with social media. And and also, I, I believe that my personal feeling is that the last 10-ish years, maybe around five to eight years, certainly, certainly the time that I've been young is has been that there's been an acceleration in lifestyle and okay well to to be young is no longer to party and have fun and all this stuff but it's also to have these things but also to take care of your body to pursue an entrepreneurship if you want to do that or pursue to kind of be the best you can be fulfill your potential and maximize yourself <laughs> so to say and i have the feeling that this culture is certainly accelerating. And so, but speaking of that, um, I just came across a, a book that a student recommended to me. Uh, it's an author, a sociologist, Hartman Rosa. And I have any of you heard of this guy? And he's the book, the first book that I took of his is uh, The Uncontrollability of the World. And this is one of his, his, his theses is that the world, the speed of the world is, is increasing. And it's not to get more, but it's, now it's just to not lose what you have. And the the more important thesis is that, uh, as you're talking about, like making all these comparisons, um, and not wanting to miss opportunities, his his project is that our culture is really about getting more and more control, and that there's something really missing in that when we're just trying to get control, is where life where you feel life and feel vitality, is when things are uncontrollable. So an image that he gives is, you know, the first snowfall. It's like you don't have control over that. You receive it. It's not your, you're not making it occur, but it can be beautiful and wonderful and mysterious. And my sense of this is also this, the, the culture goes more towards the having, as Fromm would talk about it, rather than the being, the, the, the having. You have to be this particular ways. All the ways that you're just talking about, do I have enough friends? Did I pursue these passions? It, it feels like it's not coming from the bottom up, but rather than top down, like I should do this, I should do that. Yes, and and also to link what you said with about control, it, it is we're I would say as young people we are being sent this message that we it is in our control that it is in our control it, to achieve all these things to form your own business to be a healthy person that goes to the gym that runs that has a vital social life that stays sober for example and i think uh this ideal of sobriety healthy lifestyle living is certainly that's not only sent out to us in the world but told you can do it just look at me you know through such an influencer on instagram or youtube and i i think that is, especially because the idea of celebrity today more and more is being, more and more resembles or is trying to resemble ourselves, you know? So prior, I think celebrity was limited to this group of actors, a group of uh, 
socialites that was a bit untouchable that you'd see on the TV. And now uh, fame seems you a bit You too can have a podcast. Exactly. That's what you're saying. Yes, exactly. <laughs> fame seems a bit closer for people because you see someone that shot up on YouTube or on Instagram that uh, shot up from nothing. You know, they had zero followers and then one day they had 100,000 followers. And you too can maybe start getting... 10,000 followers and then it goes up. And so the idea of, well, I can be that is very close and is being marketed as extremely attainable, although the statistics would simply suggest that it's not. And so you mean that you are basically a prey of survivorship bias and of the fact that there is a lack factor that is inevitable and that you can't control, yet you believe you are in control of that. Mm, maybe you could talk a bit about the survivor bi uh, survivorship bias. Uh, I can only that? say a bit what it is. Yeah, I'm yeah, not an please. expert for sure. Okay, but essentially, is you when I arrive there and they tell you, "Look at me," you are getting the example from somebody that could make it, mm, while there are yes. maybe a hundred million people that didn't make it, and so it's the bias of the person for which it worked that does ignore the fact that statistically that was an outlier. Yes, yes. I think, Certainly. I hope I said it right. No, you might no this is it. So, yes. And it's, I, I, I can only see it as a very deeply human uh, uh, example of um, aspiration, of looking at positive or positive successful examples, let's say. Um, it's uh, like a lot of biases. It's very, um, uh, it's very useful. It, uh, it orients you towards certain um uh, successes or towards certain survival uh, modes. And I think, but uh, listening to you all speak for the last uh, few minutes, uh, the notes that I made um, keep coalescing to, to one question. Um, does the structure that we have in our educational system, in our society, in our family systems, in our, in our relationships, uh, does it promote the, um, the right kind of reflection for setting your own personal goals or is it, I wrote down and circled, should do that? Uh, very often, my impression is, um, from my own childhood and from my own parenting, is that a lot of the examples that we set are, this is something that ought to be done. Not, let's sit down, figure out what it is that you desire to do, what you think is uh, proper in this particular situation. Of course, because this is much more difficult it's not an easy answer. It's not really an answer uh, at all. It's, uh, it's life's question. I was reading a, a book some time ago about the purpose of the university, your first uh, podcast. And this, um, the, the, the claim was, the, the, the proposal was that uni originally universities were essentially about learning how to, a grammar of value thinking about value. You, you read the great classics in philosophy, literature, and so on and so forth, and you think about it. And there's no right or wrong answer, right? But you're able to navigate the waters of value. Whereas now it seems like the universities, it's in large part, and becoming more so, right? In the Netherlands, for sure, as well as everywhere else, you give the money to the, uh, to the, the faculties that are more about the harder sciences. And the university becomes about getting skills to get a job. So you're, you're becoming a, a, a product. You're being treated as a product so you can be in this, the big machine of, of culture so you can produce and be efficient and, and get a job and that, and that sort of thing. So it's just questions like, what are we aiming for? Like fame or just having a, a job and security, these sorts of things. And, and how does that influence how we treat ourselves? There's one point I had been thinking about and I just wanted to bring in is this idea of, of love, but not this kind of romantic, you know, Jennifer Aniston rom-com movie love, but rather like an agopic love. So there's a philosopher, Harry Frankfurt, he has a great book called The Reasons of Love. And he talks about love as being the things that we care most about. And we don't choose that really. You know, we can't, we don't choose that we're going to fall in love with the ch the, our children or uh, a partner or a book or whatever it might be, but there's something that calls us. But his point is that uh, this sort of agopic love involves self-sacrifice for the benefit of the beloved. 
so that they can fulfill their potentialities. Not potentialities is like getting a job, but the potentialities for being. And I'm wondering how that seems to be lacking in our culture for ourselves. And if we treated ourselves with agapic love, that I'm going to treat myself as somebody that I want to nurture the great potentialities. And that's going to involve in pain. I'm going to delay gratification. I'm not going to go party tonight. I'm not going to do eat extra food. Or I'll do some harder things. But if we, treat, if we had an ability to treat ourselves that way, I think that would influence greatly how we see failure, how we, how we react to failure. And, you know, I think how, how we don't get that, again, I wonder part of this difficulty is that the breakdown of, of, of religion that offered that, or perhaps in the families, um, that with the like attachment theory that we oftentimes, unless the parenting is good enough, you know, we don't get that. So we have a difficulty treating ourselves with, with, with care and seriousness. I don't know. How much is that, uh, in your opinion, and how much is this willingness of uh, wanting to measure everything and decide what is good of everything? Because if I think about this, we have to rush because we need to give so many credits to the students and we have so much time. And we have to rush because we need to produce so many papers and we need to be sure we are producing them and we don't have time to actually investigate questions that we think might be interesting or might be relevant because we know that there, there is an answer and here we don't know what we are doing, even though this is more interesting. It feels like all of these are somehow a product of the fact that we need to do more and more in less and less time and that we are measure about our output now instead of in a long span of, uh, of time. And we are not measured also in terms of the time that we might waste by going in the wrong direction because we don't know a priori where we should be going. Yeah, and, and the over-concern of the present moment to the cost of the future, this is what you get in addiction, <laughs> in all types of psychopathology, of not being able to take the long view. So, what I mean, I'm curious, like, what do you see as the contributors of that problem and are there any potential uh, solutions? Oh, that's a <laughs> tough one. So one thing that I was thinking about, uh, actually when Tasso started uh, talking about uh, moving the discussion in this direction was that there is this big, oh, big, there is a group of people that started trying out the ungrading philosophy. And I think that's actually a very interesting discussion. So removing the, the measure to try and uh, make, and focusing really on uh, motivating people in trying things out. So there, I'm not measuring if you can make that exercise. I just want to see that you put in an effort and that you try it and you fail it and you discuss it. Uh, moving from having the measure on you and uh, making sure that you start a discussion with your group and work on it together. I think, I don't know, if you look at my papers, for example, I only have one on my own and I have that because I had to have a paper on my own. I hate working on my own. I like working in a group. So for me, mathematics is a social thing. And uh, when we evaluate our students, usually we evaluate them uh, working alone. And we don't, for example, foster a, a discussion, which is the core of, of progress, not just in mathematics. I think everywhere it's coming about sharing ideas, mixing them up, melting them, changing them. Uh, it's, it's how things evolve. If you don't mix them and don't discuss them, you won't have an evolution. You're just in a silos, what you were saying. You're not in a vacuum. I think this is a problem, but that's my opinion. And it's uh, very anecdotal and not informed. Beautiful. Ungrading is a topic that uh, I'd like to explore in a future podcast. It is, as you said, um, uh, a new way or not really a new way. It's, it's new in the context of where academia has been for the last uh, few decades. It's a very old concept. Um, it, grading is sort of the the newer um, the child in the in this classroom, and ungrading is a is a is an interesting philosophy. Whether it uh, currently fits in the in the in the academic system, or whether in general it fits with with how society is built on these expectations and these comparatives that Colm was also um, uh, talking about earlier. And also, I wanted to throw in the comment here that uh, as you were describing Colm, uh, all the 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 concerns then the discussions that you have in the student cohort i was thinking my god these are exactly the same conversations that i have with my colleagues about the competitiveness about the comparison the the possibility for envy of other people's success uh how you measure up the imposter syndrome 
all of these matters so perfectly mirror the student experience. And of course, it's unsurprising. There's no, you know, categorical shift that one day you switch from being a student to being something else. Uh, it's all the same kind of game. Mm -hmm. It all boils down to recognition, this desire for recognition, I feel. Well, that's interesting that you mentioned this. One of the the themes that I've been thinking about a lot in all of this is that we, we again, we talk about success and failure as a relationship that is very internal or something that is processed internally. Um, uh, but one of the uh, one of the the times that I feel um, that I'm able to process uh, both successes and failures best, is when I manage to reflect on these with other people, when they provide context with me, when they uh, also not just kindness to my failures, but also um, uh, remind me of the context in which these failures exist. It's really, really good to be acknowledged and to be reminded that, uh, uh, Colm, I've had a, an amazing time hosting this podcast with you these these last few months. And um, this contextualizes a lot of also, our inability to to run uh, episodes that we would have wished to, for example, this ability to to this is something that I often miss in the system the the fact that or the the possibility of walking to a colleague's office and saying, "Brian, um, I really appreciate you being there." So, as uh, you're talking, some of this discussion, it feels like a lot of maybe can be tied into our cultures being very. Become having become very individualistic, you know. Uh, was it Putnam wrote this great book, Bowling Alone, some years ago of how people used to bowl in in leagues. Now, you know, twenty years later, they started all bowling, you know, individually. So when you're talking about this, Asos, um, like being able to have conversations that put things into perspective. I mean, it can't just be any kind of conversation, right? It seems like most of many or most of our interactions and rightfully so are more on the superficial level but to like find the people who who care and that you can develop this this sense of of care with you know um if if our culture doesn't provide opportunities for finding that like for bowling leagues or all sorts of other kind of communitarian well the classroom should be that uh, the classroom should be one of these communities um um, um for me, the uh, this uh, we talk a lot about academic learning communities in the last few years, and uh, I have to admit that I'm a little bit disappointed in the way that we frame these academic communities. Learning as an exercise is a communal activity. We should be thinking about learning as uh, creating communities in which learning can take place, in which uh, feedback can be shared uh, with openness and with humility. Um, and contextualized in um, in this respect, and um, uh, yes, you're right. I, I agree that a lot of the um, a lot of this can be rooted in the consequences of uh, having dropped traditionally important communal uh, uh, places. But the classroom should be that. The classroom has been this for thousands of years, and I'm I don't see why it shouldn't pick up on this today. And I think we don't do that enough. We don't give enough space for conversation, for conversation for ref reflexive purposes rather than conversation for reaching to the solution of a problem and to getting to a grade or finding the answer to something or essentially resolving things, but rather um, processing things. So about that and, and about the ungrading, the question I had um, is, I mean, the the... Part of me, the more cynical part of me, is like if I don't grade the people or let people talk, they're gonna they're gonna goof around. And I guess in every kind of system, there's gonna be some freeloaders. But I think this is more like an unwarranted concern. I'm wondering though how to institute that. So I think it was Plato said that wonder is the beginning of all philosophy. So how to get there for the ungrading or in the conversation in in, in the classrooms or. I'm curious, like how students, how could you get a sense of wonder and actually be intrinsically interested in having these conversations in the classroom? I think you have to feel involved, right? And and that is something that is inherently difficult just with the size of the classrooms. It's so difficult to feel like you can contribute 
and to have the desire to contribute and to put yourself out there when there's 200 listeners. Uh, I think that's just not only you, you feel like you shouldn't, but you feel like I don't want to because it's scary. And I, I have a feeling that is one of the main, if not the main problem. And I, and I see it with, I see it with, uh, I saw it with my past studies, uh, we, you know, in engineering, you follow a format where you start as a big cohort in your first year, then you specify uh, in your discipline, and you increasingly become smaller and smaller in classes until it's something like a 20-person class. And at that point, you're very much involved in the discussion, and the discussions become quite interesting. And you have this communal learning environment that is just not going to exist in your first year. You're doing a job uh, coming up with topics for new podcasts, uh, Marcello and Brian, I really appreciate this. Uh, actually, curiosity and wonder how to uh, value these traits in an educational system, uh, in an academic system, in, in your family, in your interpersonal connections is something that I'd like to explore in a, in a future episode also. There is uh, maybe one uh, dark side of all this thing that we have shrugged under the rug that is we are talking from our pedestal somehow. I am white, middle-aged family. I'm very privileged in many senses. And if I think about courses evaluations or lecturer evaluations, for example, the same lecture with the same the same showing of vulnerability or the same complaining about something, if I am a male or a female, or if I come from a minority, might be seen by peers or by the student in a very different way. And the other thing is that if I make a class in which you have to discuss then I'm essentially telling all the extrovert students, you're good to go and all the introverts now, and why should I take them out? And there is a subtle thing that is partly about culture. How can we change the culture so that this bias is based on sex, age or, age or whatnot, which might we might not even be aware of, uh, can be taken out of the picture and not be a problem any longer. And how can we arrange any ungrading or any social class in such a way that we are not excluding half of the people because they are more or less inclined to be part of the discussion. And there is, of course, the question, how we make them interested. But I think the, how we make it interested is the obvious one, while the other two, uh, we always think about them too late somehow. No, very good points. Um, these are certainly... Um considerations that always need to be taken into account in whatever system you have. Um, uh, this is the case also for for uh, current grading systems, whether they um, bias towards a certain personality or a certain characteristic or a certain um, um, uh, gender identity or uh, age or experience or ethnicity or culture. All of these things are important um, to consider in whatever educational community you create. So, so I think we've had a really interesting discussion so far. And for the last bit of this podcast, I think I would just like to circle back to really the essence, you know, so how do we handle failure and maybe put it into more concrete steps, so to say, or to discuss for any listeners what, what options are available to them. And I think key to our discussion here at the very end will be acceptance you know how to really failure i think we've all touched upon is, is a bit innate to life you know um it really should be death taxes and failure you know it's, it should be included as a third item there but i i think acceptance is very key to the discussion and tasos you you were mentioning that you would like to maybe make it a bit more real with a practical example of um being on the uh, binding study advice committee and how you perceive your role there. Maybe you can talk a bit about that. Yeah. So I've been in the, in the faculty committee for, um, the BSA, the binding study advice, which, um, for those listeners who don't know what it is, um, in the, in the university, um, there's a requirement for meeting certain criteria to to go forward from the first year to the second year, and that typically is to um, receive 45 ECTS per year. There are adjustments because of COVID situations, but the sort of general situation is to receive uh, 45 credits out of 60 in the first year before you continue. 
But of course, one of the um, one of the aspects that we don't often talk about in this kind of system is that um, there are all kinds of cases that don't meet these criteria that we still consider. Um, and the BSA committee essentially handles these exceptional cases. These uh, these cases that haven't met these criteria, and then we evaluate whether the process uh, was itself sufficient. And I think through the last few years of um, of um, uh, looking at uh, hundreds of portfolios and cases, and talking to colleagues, and thinking a lot about uh, about this process, um, um, we have uh, not an expectation per se, but there are, I think, some practical uh, pointers that we can offer uh, listeners on how to deal with any kind of failure, but certainly this kind of failure of not meeting certain requirements in their studies, or again, not being able to submit an assignment or time or um, or not being able to take an exam um, successfully or with the right circumstances. Um, I think one of the uh, one of the starting places for me is is to to acknowledge and make space for this so-called mistake or quote unquote mistake or this this um, failure, let's call it. Uh, rather than avoid the fact that this happened, um, uh, find space to acknowledge that it happened and it, it is something that needs to be managed and talked about and actually owned in many cases rather than waiting as you, um, uh, I think you mentioned this, Marcello, earlier also to, to talk about it from your perspective. I think it's important to, to embrace the emotions that are associated with it. I think you need to uh, find um, um, whatever support structures you have and also personally to think about what it means for you, what this pa- uh, failure means to you in terms of consequences, but also in how you relate to it as an individual. And um, to go back to what Kipling was saying, perhaps also understand that that, that these uh, failures aren't um, some kind of representation of who you are or some com- some kind of judgment of your humanity or who you are as an individual, but perhaps failures of process or other other things. Um, I think it's important to understand the process that led to these circumstances, whatever it might be. Sometimes it's just very simply practical. Um, and that's a different kind of situation to deal with. Uh, offer these explanations, understand these reasons and describe them and uh, offer them genuinely without making excuses for them, but also taking the right amount of responsibility. And by that, I don't mean that you need to take responsibility for it, but to actually understand what was in your control and um, use that as an opportunity to learn uh, how to handle situations like this, how to potentially prevent them from happening in the future. And uh, also consider how you're going to put um, these mistakes in some kind of order. So in the case of the BSA, we always uh, want to know um, the the reasons for not meeting these requirements, uh, some kind of understanding of what this process entailed, what the responsibility was, but also coming up with a plan for getting back on track. I think this is uh, uh, really an important aspect of dealing with failure, Re, uh, coming up to a new relationship about how you're going to get back on on whatever track it was that you wanted to be in the first place. Um, certainly not f- um, think of failure as um, a reflection of who you are as a person, but really a consequence of actions and analyze those actions and uh, think about future ways of thinking about it. And of course, accept that this is what happened. Um, acceptance of yourself um, is uh, is a really major aspect in this process, I think. Brian and uh, Marcello, maybe maybe we can start with you, Brian. Maybe do you guys have any final remarks on how to handle failure? Yeah, I, I think in some ways I'm just going to reiterate what Tasso said from a little bit different perspective. I, I liked uh, the philosopher Nietzsche, he's in a cynical, bombastic sort of way. He said one time, he wasn't sure what the primary human motivation was, laziness or fear. And I think for the the laziness part, I think what Tasso said about taking responsibility is is really critical. I'd like to know that nobody's going to come save you if if this thing, though, is under your control. right? And that's, I think that's, again, important is underlining the things that are under one's control and the things that are not under one's control. If they're under your control, 
and your feeling than to really take an honest stock of what you could have done differently and, and try better the next time. And then the, the fear part, um, I th- it speaks to me a bit about the, uh, the things that are under, not under your control so much. And, and you can avoid, avoid knowledge of that, pretend that didn't happen, ignore it. You can try to numb it, alcohol, drugs, doing other sorts of things. There's a, a large literature in, in the clinical psychology showing that uh, avoidance is a really bad idea. It's just going to make things worse. It's going to make your life smaller. You feel smaller. Uh, life feel more dangerous. It's, it's just not a good thing. So the option contrary to that is the acceptance and in embracing it and being with it. From a mindfulness perspective, it's really paying attention and allowing the emotion and the thoughts to be as they are and not feeding them, but just watching them. And what you will often almost inevitably find is that they are not what they initially said they are. That they come and they go and then they're gone and it's okay. So that you have this negative thought about yourself or about how things are going to be, it's not permanent. It's, it's not, that does not reflect reality. It's a thought or an emotion and it'll go. And, uh, and to have some compassion uh, with yourself in that. So I think some of the other things talked by, by, I think all the members here of, of contextualizing it and having a sense of common humanity is, is, is one element of, of self-compassion. You know that other people have these experiences as well. Right? And this is just part of life. And, uh, yeah, and then, and then move on to the next thing. Finally, Marcello. Yeah. So I'm the last one. I, I don't know what else to say, <laughs> but, um, there is one, something that resonated a lot. And, uh, each time I think, oh, wow, that's genius. And then I forget about it. And then I think it again, five minutes later, there is, uh, uh this thing about self-reflection, this slowing down, taking your time, thinking about it and, uh, look at it. Uh, somehow in perspective and reframing it in perspective, take your time to see what went wrong, why it went wrong. Was it really wrong? What can I learn from it? I think that's a big uh, part of acceptance and, uh, uh, and also compassion is like, what can I learn from it? How can I grow from here? I mean, it's uh, life is a roller coaster. It's fun because of that. You never know what happens. And, uh, when you want, don't, when something that you don't expect happens, which is almost all the time, you just have to slow down, look at it. What can I do now? How can I get where I want to go? Or how can I just move on and uh, deal, get, get on with it? It's easier said than done, though. That's certainly true. I like that as an ending. It's yes. uh, always easier said than done. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to close our conversation. And... I would like to thank our two guests for joining us uh, for this conversation. Uh, we really appreciate your time. And I, I personally really appreciate the content that we were able to produce together. So thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah I, yeah, I found it very, very engaging, meaningful. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it was a great conversation. I'm really honored to be here. Thanks. I can't say anything more to this. It was a great joy to speak to all three of you. So uh, with that, that's the end of this episode, episode seven titled handled handling failure uh you've been listening to the degrees of freedom podcast i am one of your hosts colin forhan and we'll catch you next time this podcast was a production of the university of Groningen.